Good morning, and welcome back to the Patreon-exclusive podcast, Dance Dorothy Dance. This is the Dorothy Arzner podcast. I am B. Peterson. I am your host. With me, as always, is the lovely Mark Edward Hoyk. Ah, thank you. It's uh, tr- tremendous to be here again. Yes. Um, I just I wanted to shout out up at the top of the show that you just did a uh, podcast the other day with um, two uh, of my other heroes, which would be Whitney Seibold and Alonzo Duralde, um, all about the Apple. Uh, oh yes, uh, uh, that that's probably I've done three episodes of Suddenly Soundtracks with Chris Clark, and I think that one might be my favorite episode. It was pretty fun, um, and I just wanted there was at one point that that something you said picked my interest and. And I mean, there is a ton of stuff in there just about preservation and talking about how you were handling like the some of the only uh, copies of the film that were <laughs> be that were available, and all that stuff was really fascinating. Um, but there's one thing that you mentioned that I just I have I've I'd never heard of before, and I'm just wondering if you could enlighten me on what this Sony occupation is that you that you mentioned at one point. Okay, well, it's. Uh... My my terminology it's my terminology uh, for basically what happened is that around uh, around uh, two thousand th- around two thousand three I, I mean within my my year maybe off but in the early knots uh, there was a consortium that bought MGM. And okay. Sony was a minority partner in the consortium, so they did not have a majority interest in the group. You know, there's this mistaken notion that Sony bought MGM, and that's not true. They were part of a group that bought MGM, but because Sony had an existing infrastructure to release movies and uh, release. DVDs, you know, physical distribution and such, they took it upon themselves to eliminate MGM's uh, entire infrastructure for releasing movies in theaters and on home video. And, you know, they assumed that duty themselves. They said, oh, well, this is redundant. We don't need this. And what gradually happened is that the quality of the DVDs that MGM was releasing went way down because at that up until that point MGM had been doing a lot of deep catalog titles because they had uh, in uh, inherited about over like 2,000 movies from all of these defunct distributors of the 70s and 80s and they were actively mining that catalog along with all of the United Artists and uh, Canon movies that they already owned, and, and Orion as well. And so when Sony came in, they kind of just put a grinding halt to the catalog releases, and they started handling what few theatrical films MGM still had left in production. And after a while, the consortium noticed that Sony was funneling all the profits from those movies. You know, it was supposed to be split up amongst all of the owners, and then the consortium realized uh, you know, that Sony was basically treating it like their own playground. And they and they eventually 
made them this ultimatum like okay you can stay in the consortium but we are you, you cannot handle distribution we are taking this back and so they had to reconstitute a distribution department and that's when uh they made a long-term deal with 20th century fox for home video uh distribution that's and that went until 2020 so that's why if you buy a dvd or a blu-ray of a, a, an MGM movie, even one that's been licensed out to another label like Kino or Arrow or Olive, that you would see both an MGM and a 20th logo because they were they were like handling the the home video distribution of the library and getting a cut therein of anything they made. So. So I, I call it the occupation because they didn't actually own them, but they were acting like they did. And I I could do an entire lecture about this at the Learning Annex because it it basically stems from it it's so mundane. It stems from the fact that basically Sony had been chasing the James Bond franchise for decades and at the time that they got into this group that bought MGM, this was the format wars of the next great upgrade. It was Blu-ray, which Sony had, versus HD DVD, which was, I think, uh, Philips, and which uh, Universal and a few other studios had signed on to exclusively. So there was this big back and forth over, well, you know, HD TV. HD DVD has these studios exclusively, but Blu-ray has Sony exclusive. And Sony figured out that the majority of early adapters are young men with disposable income, and they want James Bond. And they figure, okay, if we lock up the Bond movies, we will win the format war. And so it's it was akin to buying a huge record collection from somebody because you wanted one album and you left the other 400 999 titles in the garage to get warped. Wow. Well, that is that is just so so refreshing and encouraging that um that that the studios care so much about preservation and and getting uh making sure that that everyone has access to all of its art. Oh wait, never mind. Well, um... <laughs> well, let me. Well, uh, let me disclaim. Currently, Sony's motion picture division does have an excellent preservation arm. You know that. You know okay. this is we're talking about the Sony Corporation, not right. you know the people who actually work at the studio. You know the people who work at the studio and physically handle the movies do excellent preservation work. If anything, oh. these people too were stymied during this period because they you know uh, the Sony Corporation's uh, priorities were different than what you know the the studio people's were. Now I've 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 known people who worked for Sony and ultimately left Sony precisely because of uh, this impasse. Got it. Okay. Well, um, thank you for for enlightening me and and our listeners because um, I I just I enjoy hearing that kind of stuff. Speaking of MGM, 
Um, the film we're going to be uh, talking about today is an MGM film, and the 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 focus of this episode of Dance Dorothy Dance will is uh, the 1937 film The Last of Mrs. Cheney. Um, this is the other 1937 Dorothy Arzner Joan Crawford joint, where Joan Crawford is um, uh, uh, playing a part in order to get in with some rich people. So um, I felt that it made a good double feature. So here we are. And um, uh, just before one last thing before we get into the film itself is I just wanted that there has been a recent um, uh, uh, passing that I think we should definitely acknowledge and that we should acknowledge the loss of the great um, beard that Mark Edward Hoyt had grown over quarantine. And, and it's it's, <laughs> it's gone now. <laughs> Uh, yes, um, I was I was uh, renewing my passport, and I figured I needed to be clean for that photo. So got uh, it. Okay. Uh, we have to make sacrifices sometimes, and and even kill our darlings. Yeah, Mark Edward Hook's beard, you will be missed. But uh, yeah, uh, the last of Mrs. Cheney. Um, this is a this is an interesting entry in the filmography because Dorothy Arzner initially went uncredited. Um, for and I mean technically in the film she is still uncredited. Um, this film is credited to Richard Boleslawski, who is a very prominent director of the time. He directed the 1935 adaptation of Les Misérables that was nominated for Best Picture. Um, but halfway through production, um, he passed away suddenly, and um, and uh, George Fitzmaurice was was brought in to finish the film. But then he too fell ill, and so it was Dorothy Arzner who finally came in and finished the movie. And so it's 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 a bit of a uh, uh, maybe a, a it's a worthy debate to have on whether or not Dorothy Arzner should be. Um, this could be seen as a Dorothy Arzner film, but I think that uh, specifically because of the the many similarities it bears to um, uh, to the film that we reviewed last week, The Bride Wore Red, I think it's 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 a worthy discussion. Um, Mark Edward Hoyk, Mark, um, why don't you give us a a a summary rundown of the film we're talking about? Well, uh, uh, three uh, a group of uh, very af fluent people cross paths with a a socialite that they are not acquainted with the woman who calls herself uh, Faye Cheney uh, and who uh, immediately beguiles uh, two of uh, the men of this group uh, one, one of whom is a uh, never married bachelor in his in his 50s and the other a uh, younger more rakish individual who's you know clearly been you know, through se several women in the past. And it isn't until a third of the way into the movie that we discover that uh, Faye Cheney is, in fact, a con artist, uh, part of a whole group of grifters who have been posing as the uh, domestic staff in a mansion and propping her up as their mistress in order to uh, rob the uh, very other rich people of their property and then move on so you know they get they get access they get into the house and uh the primary uh participant with uh faye is uh someone who she may or may not have had a romantic relationship with but is clearly very close to and that is a uh, thief uh, named charles uh played by uh william powell from the thin man movies right, right. 
Um, yeah, and and as you might expect in a film made during the Hayes Code, that that she doesn't get away with it. She almost does, um, but she is eventually found out. And I think what constitutes the most int- the interesting, strangest part of this film for me was the fallout and how um, uh, Mrs. Cheney essentially manipulates everyone into um, getting off scot-free or if she is trying to, it's a very strange, this whole, this whole, um, this whole, uh, climax slash falling action in this film is, is a very, was very odd. This was my second viewing. Um, I saw this back in December when I, it was my first Dorothy Arzner film and I first Joan Crawford film. And I was just so perplexed by the, all of the, how this film ended up going after the, she was found out. And, and upon a rewatch, it, it's it still remains to be a very uh almost unnecessarily uh complicated way of of resolving things is that it ultimately becomes about how since i failed to do this heist i must go to jail and then there's this back and forth between this family and um and mrs cheney and charles um about whether or not they they will be shown to the police or that they'll be let let go and it's 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 a lot of back and forth and i found myself just rather curious as like what is what is going on here um it's there's a i'm not sure what the purpose of it all is well it it definitely ties itself into a gordian knot of sorts and i've not done the deepest research to determine if that has always been inherent to the story or if this was a wrinkle brought in by making it in 1937 after the institution of the Hayes Code. Because yeah, in, in the Hayes Code, crimes could not go unpunished. So you could right. not have somebody getting away with it in any sort of capacity and that and that means that they have so they have to have some sort of moral ending and i guess that this was the, the best way they were able to you know fulfill the needs of uh, the the morals clause while still having some sort of comedic finish to the movie right Right. and and it's this where we it it is questionable how much influence we can say arzner had on this because ultimately she just came to steer the crippled ship to home and you can't really look at this movie like some other you know half and half directed films and say oh this was clearly her work versus oh this was uh you know clearly richard's work and oh this was george's work you know that it has a general smoothness to it that it doesn't feel particularly disjointed uh it does it does feel very strangely complicated in that fi- in that final third as you pointed out 
And I would dare say that it's in that final third that if there is any direct influence to be found by Dorothy Arzner, that is probably where it is because, you know, putting a retroactive lens on it, it's that is where I think we have the most kinds of explorations of queer identity in that third. Right. Um, yeah, no, it goes back to the conversation that is always being had around auteur theory. And it's a conversation that we haven't, I haven't really had explicitly on any of, of my podcasts yet, which I think is uh, odd because, I mean, f- as someone who doesn't really believe in auteur theory, I mean, I have based my entire podcast network around exploring single directors and their filmographies. And and for for those who might it might not be so the auteur theory is basically the if we were to ascribe a film to one individual who would we say is responsible for for the ultimate vision and uh outcome of the film and the auteur theory is, states and it was uh, uh origin it has its origins date back to Cahiers du cinema and and the and those folks is that the director is the one who is the auteur and it is their vision that comes across on screen. And, um, and I would say, I would counter that to is like, well, I don't think that there are there. I can't think of really any other piece art forms that are more collaborative than filmmaking. I mean, there are hundreds if tens dozens if not hundreds if not thousands of people who work on any on a given film and who are we to ascribe all of its failings and all of its successes to a single individual and and while yes certain directors films can be like you can you can like i can one can watch a a hitchcock film or a or a um a uh, Chloe Zhao film and, and be able to pick up on a lot of through lines through their filmographies of lots of of basically a check mark of 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 signals that this is from them but but um when when it comes to stuff like this is like the director really is I mean is this more of a, is the would the auteur here be the writer or would it be Joan Crawford I mean how what is your whole whole view on the auteur theory Mark Well I do think it gets lazily leaned on too often in in how it always seems to be ascribed to the director uh, that being said if we look at the whole of uh, film production the 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 old saw is uh success has many parents but failure is an orphan and that when when a film comes together there are rightfully all sorts of people who come to uh take their their credit because they all made a contribution but when a film goes when a film goes badly you know, seven times out of ten, it is blamed on the director. That's why we have the concept of director jail. You know, where you know if something if something goes badly, it's the director who winds up having trouble getting hired again for a certain period of time. You know that there are plenty of uh, writers who have 
churned out poor scripts who you know, continue to get get stuff sold or there are producers who have projects that don't uh, deliver at the box office but they are still able to raise money and get projects made so i would say that where where there is merit in the auteur theory it is that it is a collaborative medium and there is but there is someone who is like an orchestra conductor who has to get all these disparate elements to work together and it you know that and i think in film we can ascribe it to a director uh, whereas in television we tend to ascribe it to what they call the showrunner which is usually the or the line producer because that is the person who is on the set all the time who has the show bible in their hands and has to cr create a sense of consistency throughout the episodes because that because there they are changing out directors and even if one comes in with their own particular style it still needs to be to fit within the confines of the template that television program has established right you know, that you know that you can that if you watch an, the uh, the fly episode of breaking bad that still is very much ryan johnson's technique you know, that stands out from the show but it is still one installment of a show that is the vision of vince gilligan right yeah, yeah and for sure also otourism is a new con is still a relatively new concept because up until uh the up until the 50s even in film advertising when movies were being hyped, it wasn't it wasn't generally their directors that were being hyped. It was their producers that were being hyped. Yeah, uh, yeah. I once wrote an essay uh, for my blog about how, arguably speaking, Alfred Hitchcock is the first rock and roll director in that mm. hit because up until up until a certain point when he came to America, he had a reputation. But all of the movies that he did up until that point, they were being promoted not as Alfred Hitchcock directed vehicles. They were being promoted as David O. Selznick produced vehicles. Yeah. And after a while, Hitchcock was looking at this and thinking, okay, Selznick has his name above the title. He's the one who's coming to me and dictating what I can and cannot do. Therefore, I need to put myself into a position where I get to make my own dictation, and that's when he started producing his own movies and being able to increase his profile. That, you know, for for the Wonks listening, this is the reason why many of uh, his prime films of the '50s were in a distribution limbo in the '70s and didn't come back until the '80s because. He was making those films for Paramount, but he what he had produced them himself and like you know gotten his own funding, and consequently those movies reverted to him, and he you know sold them to his estate, sold them to Universal in the 80s, and that's why 
uh, all but one, which was uh, to catch a thief, left Paramount. That one stayed because they already had developed that property, so they owned it, and he was just the director for hire on it, even though by that point he had name above the title status. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in, in terms of the, the, the last of Mrs. Cheney, um, I, I, you'd, we, we can go back to that, to that final third where the, where the, the queer coding is. I mean, when, when I was watching this film, what stood out about, um, in terms of, of queer coding was, um, and (laughs) the film kind of contradicts it is that, um, one of the, one of the many men who become infatuated with um, with Mrs. Cheney is this, is Willie, and he has a wife who is always hanging out with her cousin, and I thought for sure that that cousin was gay, but then it turned out that it was he was that, I mean, and it the whole thing builds up to where um, uh, uh, Lord uh, Lord, <laughs> not Lord Kelvin. Um, what is, uh, Kelton, Lord Kelton. Um, he's written a letter to Mrs. Cheney that basically lays bare all of the family's, uh, uh, atrocities, if you will. One of them is a fallen woman. One of them, um, uh, uh, has all of the, the, the skeletons in the closet, as they say, um, as, um, as, uh, as Lord Dilling says at one point. It's the thirties equivalent of a burn book. <laughs> right. Yeah. As as Lord Dillon says at one point, the skeletons are falling out of the closet. Um and I was like, ah, the closet. A closet joke. I see you. Um uh but and I was just like, really? So the whole thing with the cousin is that they're having an affair or that he's having an affair with um with with uh uh Willie Willie Winton's wife and I was just like no I'm pretty sure he's gay I don't I don't know um I don't that was was that your takeaway as well because that was mine when it came to the the cousin George well I would I had I was thinking more along the lines of that 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 the this that this woman who it was you know prefers to be with her cousins that it was more of a a lesbian reference that you know some you know the way how uh, oftentimes if uh, unwed mothers were you know go uh, sent to the country to visit with their aunt or that that yeah. sort of thing. Okay, but but yeah, it's it it is very much the predecessor of something like the boys in the band where you know everywhere. You know, everybody's secrets get read out loud in a social setting, and it's like, okay, now we're going to keep it real. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. right with uh, you know the the uh, truth or dare game that they play uh, earlier in the movie at the house. Yes. What I'm 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 having uh, d- some some difficulty with this film and in how to interpret it and what it what it's saying because. On my upon my first viewing, my takeaway was that 
um, when all was said and done, that the rich family, they didn't want, because Mrs. Cheney had this letter that if it were to be read in court, would sully all their good names. And so they were trying to basically let her off the hook in order to let themselves off the hook. And But then it turns out that the letter didn't matter because she had torn it up. And, and when all was said and done, and they still were all were all being very kind to her and they were going to set her up with a shop. And my thing was like, so is the messaging of this film um, about how the rich will essentially admire, they would rather admire someone who was stealing, would admire, rather admire a thief than, um, than admit to their own essential, their own wrongdoings. And, that is it the is it trying to be a satire about how the rich um respect uh thieves because that is what they themselves are doing and on the second viewing it just it didn't seem quite as clear cut and i was just like is this just a bad satire i'm not really sure what the ultimate messaging in this film specifically to do with class is because th- i mean as we saw with the bride wore red there is a lot of there's a lot of discussion that can be had with someone who is posing in a in a wealthy um, environment and the the class differences and how uh, the perceptions of of class differences. But here it, it just seems that everything just seems more muddled to me and I'm, I'm not really sure what the, what my takeaway should be from this film. Well, uh, I think some of it is uh, uh you know in in your first reading the you know there you know the there's uh to, to bring another old saw behind every great fortune there's a great crime so in a sense uh, everybody who has who has uh you know lived who has lived the high life has probably done at least one unscrupulous thing in order to hold on to that wealth so you know, maybe game recognizes game, uh, and, uh, and as far to to the point where uh, there's the little exchange between uh, uh, Char- uh, Charles and uh, and his rival over the fact that he finally figures out that he was the one who stole his watch, and he always kind of admired the fact of oh he. He got he got away with it, you know that that there's, and I think maybe it kind of even goes even deeper to uh, the 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 some of the ideas that are rightly or wrongly attributed to uh, the mythos of P.T. Barnum, the idea that there is there is on a primal level we like to be fooled, you know, that. We that we know uh, certain things aren't possible, but if we are made to believe them for a second, and we figure, and then we find out that we've been taken, we're almost we're almost in awe of you know the moxie that it took to get us to believe it, and our willingness to suspend our disbelief. You know that that you know there you know there is no such thing as a mermaid, but if someone at, at the fair tells you that they've got a mermaid behind the curtain you'll pay your dollar 50 because in a sense you want to see how they're going to pull it off and and they did in like 
okay, you got me. <laughs> uh, so, so I, and I think it's also the notion that, uh, that it, at least in that time and not so much now where class and status is such a, an important thing that in a sense, the only way to justify having a, a relationship of equals with people that are not initially equal to you is to make them equal. You know, that, that, uh, that, that fundamentally, even though, you know, at one point they do want to see her prosecuted, they're upset about it because they all kind of liked this woman. And, you know, the, because I think my favorite dynamic of the movie is the relationship between uh, Mrs. Cheney and the Duchess, when the Duchess reveals that basically she was a showgirl who married rich, and, and that you know she she came from nothing herself and just lucked into all of her millions, and and that and and so in some ways she feels they each feel this deep. Uh, empathy with each other because they, you know, one lucked out and the other one is trying to get to that status, but they, they could have just as easily been at the same status in an, in another, in another setting. So they're all kind of, they, they all kind of want to keep her in their lives, but, you know, they, they, or, you know, this, you know, and this is where the Hayes office comes in you know, that where that like you have to punish her for the crime and you know somebody has to go to jail <laughs> and yeah. and this because I think if that had not been in there we probably would have had an easier resolution to the story you know that there would have been you know that it, it would have been like 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 dirty rotten scoundrels that there would have just been this sort of level of mutual respect between the the manipulated and the con artist that yo oh okay you're good you got me yo we should work together again uh, but that the next best thing is well then we need to set her up in society with her own legitimate operations so that we can justify you know having her in our circle okay well going because this is adapt this 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 uh, screenplay was adapted from a a script for a play and it was it was originally a, a 1925 play, and there was actually a previous adaptation a 1929 pre code adaptation that started starred uh, Norma Shearer, um, and from what I could I didn't have time to actually watch the film but um, but from what I gathered about it that there was still the same. Um, climax with the letter so forth now what i don't know is if at the end of the film that charles um went to jail um i'm guessing that uh mrs cheney still ended up with lord dylan because the title of the play and the film is the last of mrs cheney which is a reference to the final line of the film is like that this kiss was the last of mrs cheney and this kiss is the first of lady dylan um 
but I'm wondering if maybe that Charles got off the hook in, in the previous version or, and there was also a, a 1951 adaptation with uh, Greer Garson that was under a different name called the law and the lady um, is that I'm curious to see how maybe the, the differences between the adaptations, how much um, was because of, of the Hayes code or because of maybe just individual directors um or or adapters of the of the screenplay um it also in terms of adaptation i feel like because the bride war red the bride war red was also a stage adaptation and where as that one there felt to be a certain degree of freedom like people went places they went out into the mountains and they went in they were there were large vistas and etc this film felt comparatively very very trapped um where aside from uh one one scene in a garden and at night and then a one scene which is out on a deck we're pretty much just in rooms for the entirety of of this of this film and and it it's it the staging feels for me like it's it's very the blocking isn't nearly as dynamic in this film as as in as we have previously seen and i felt that this film it's uh it's an hour 40 or so and this one for a large part of it i was like let's let's move along with this because i the, a lot of the shots were a lot more static and in some cases that really worked for me what my favorite moment in the film i'd say is when um after the jig is jig is up and they're waiting for the inspector to come in the morning that um cheney and dilling and charles all sit down and they have a smoke and it's just this one static shot of them lighting their cigarettes and just offering lights to the others and it's just a quiet moment and i felt like that's where those where the film felt the strongest but a lot of it is they're trying to in there's a lot of that attempted like the witty dialogue in something like the bride war red but here it felt for the most part like it 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 didn't come off as well and so for me i'd say that this film as an adaptation it it didn't uh uh break out of its um theatrical trappings where i mean and sometimes if you lean into it that can be great i mean just look at recently ma rainey's black bottom is a very contained film and works brilliantly where here it it felt like they were kind of straining against their their theatrical roots yeah that it's (laughs) hell uh you know not 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 to not to bring a hard day's night into the episode again, like last week, but I'm, I'm imagining uh, Paul's grandfather talking about, well, all, all I've done is been in a chain in a room and then a car in a room and then a room in a room. Yeah, it is. It, it definitely feels way more stage bound than uh, the bride wore red, you know, that in how it stays in these primary locations and is, depending upon a sort of screwball behavior between the characters to provide the motion uh, amidst the stasis. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that is something that kind of, you know, bring makes it uh, 
a little bit lesser than the the bride the bride wore red because it is it by it's it's more confined right um yeah which which makes it all the more interesting to me that this was the better received film out of the two and they came out in the same year um it's just it's just funny to me because i mean uh Joan Crawford is of course lovely. She's got that she's got that powerful edge to her that that really holds this film together. Um Frank Morgan was a particular favorite of mine and his his a uh, his he his mumbling that would I mean that's something that you don't see a lot in in older films where people like ramble and he's like the in throughout the film he's going uh uh yes uh well the and I I enjoyed that his 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 droll dynamic there it's it's a very British film this oh 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 poor word Kelton you uh you know un, unmarried past. 50 um i'm relating to this a little too well (laughs) Uh, yeah um i uh yeah thank you for sticking the shiv in me again uh dorothy Uh. (laughs) Uh, well uh yeah so i'm i'm not entirely sure what more there is to say about well, uh, i'd also like to throw in um uh, some kudos for uh Nigel Bruce as uh, Willie, uh, who uh, Nigel Bruce would later go on to play uh, Doctor Watson to Basil Rathbone's uh, Sherlock Holmes in right. several yeah. uh, film adaptations uh, over the years, uh, and he, you know, he's 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 pretty fun as just you know he he he's like he wants to be like you know the third wheel on you know the of the thir- of these three men and he just does not he is just getting blocked worse than anybody else i mean one because he's married and he has no business you know wildcatting but secondly because he's got the least game of all these all these other men there <laughs> right and i i should point out that uh that basil rathbone who um uh, is the was uh the was played uh, Lord Dilling in the 1929 adaptation of this of this play. Most astute. Um, but yeah, uh, this film uh, it was generally well received. I mean, it was it was based off of a film, uh, a previous adaptation. There would be another adaptation. Um, I, for me, it feels pretty slight. I mean, a film that I was reminded of throughout was I just my mind kept going back to um to the rules of the game, the Jean Renoir film from 1939, and this film just ultimately felt just like a a a, a less a less intelligent I mean, most films are less intelligent than the rules of the game, but um a le- a less intelligent satire of of rich people uh, worrying about all the wrong things, and I don't know. But aside from some some very pleasant, enjoyable performances, there was a this this film doesn't. I mean, I had seen this before, and I had forgotten a vast majority of it by the time I came around to watching it again. Well, I think there's a there's there's a few interesting uh, motifs in here that keep it from being. Uh, disposable uh i i really loved uh you know the nation sequence when they're selling all those doll replicas of uh <laughs> that social circle 
and you know, that you know, the, you know, it's almost literally saying that we would rather own a facade of someone we're infatuated with than have the real thing, especially when we can't have uh, the actual person, and how it comes back around when after the auction is over and we finally and we first discover that uh mrs mrs cheney is a grifter when the maid says uh you know look you all dressed up like a mannequin which is you know a double entendre because one it's referring to you know the doll of her that just sold for huge money and also the fact that joan crawford had been in a movie called mannequin which has nothing to do with uh you know posing in store windows it's more of the you know the actual french term meaning model you know which in itself is also has meaning, you know, being the model of you know, fem- femininity and you know affluence when you know it's not the real thing. <laughs> and I, I've always, so I thought that that was an an interesting uh, theme, and then uh, just the the I think the the big on the nose. The bit of dialogue is uh, when she says, "I'd pre- I'd prefer a thousand times they should know what what the, the truth about me than you." Who? Oh wait, I I have to. I'm trying to read my own writing. I <laughs> chicken scratch it. I prefer a thousand times they should know what's true about me than you believe what isn't. Mmm. Mmm. That's juicy. Yeah. Uh, we should we should just um start we should have a maybe start like a, a a Google Doc or something that just all of the lines from Dorothy Arzner films that if you said them today would just be like ah yes queer that that might be an interesting uh project um I you know I don't know because you know we, you know, we are talking about a tour theory and you know we're we're not really even talking about the writers and because and you know writers always get shafted but especially in the 30s they right. <laughs> in the 40s they get shafted because you know that we had some of the greatest screenwriters of our time working during that period but you know that they they were rarely getting the nods that they deserved and uh, there's there's a short version and a long version of this joke, and I kind of prefer the long version just because it's so dramatic. Uh, a a Texas high roller strolls into the Beverly Hills Hotel after an extraordinary run of luck in Vegas. He walks to the concierge's desk, pulls a fat wad of bills out of his pocket, slams it down, and bellows, I want you to find me a $25,000 whore. And the concierge returns with a screenwriter. <laughs> Nice, classy. <laughs> so, so I don't know if if any of these lines were already in the script before Arzner got a hold of it. I have to believe that they were, and maybe it's upon looking at them that Arzner decided, okay, yeah, I'll jump in and finish this off because you know there's material here. I think I can work with that. I'm I'm on board with. So, you know, here, so it's not really fair to attribute this dialogue as her influence because it was probably already there. But I think if though, and we don't know which scenes are hers, we, you know, there's again, the movie is seamless in terms of hiding, you know, who directed what moments. But 
the fact that she is associated with it and there is this queer context to it, it stands to reason there is some degree of influence there. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, so, Mark, then, uh, any final thoughts on The the Last of Mrs. Cheney? Uh, well, uh, it's, you know, maybe it's because uh, I don't know why I ha- have it on my mind, but as watching it in, in the you know, in the finish when the story of the letter comes out, all I, you know, I, I, I kept thinking of a, a clue and I was going to expose you. Yes. So I choose to expose myself. Please. There are ladies present. <laughs> so uh, I, it's, I think it's, it's not nearly as, as potent as the bride wore red, but it is still an entertaining uh, farce about how, how the notion of such a slippery thing, and that if you can you know, present the if you can present the right image and talk the right game or subvert it in the right manner, that you can blend right in and nobody would be the wiser, thus making the very notion of class a, a stupid concept. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Um, all right, then. Um, so that is The Last of Mrs. Cheney. Um, this might be a shorter episode. Uh, I initially wanted all the podcasts to be between half an hour and 40 minutes, and it turns out that just my co-hosts have too many good things to say for that to happen. Um, so, um, but, yeah, so this week was a film that may or may not be a full Arsner joint, but that will no longer be the case because next week, um, we're going to be, well, let's see here. This, it's, it's a bi-weekly podcast. Um, so this podcast is actually going to be taking a bit of a break because I'm going to be taking a bit of a break for mental health family stuff. Um, uh, but when we come back, uh, but, and it'll be by the end of the month, we'll be talking about uh, the earliest surviving uh, uh, Dorothy Arzner film, and that is Get Your Man from 1927. And it's not all there. Um, some of its reels were lost, but we have a majority of the film, so that's what we'll be talking about is Get Your Man. And that is available. It's in the public domain. You can just find it um, out there. And um, But, yeah, no, I'm... Uh, I'm I'm gonna be enjoying this little break. Um, when we come back, all have turned twenty, so I will be twenty years old for the next. By the time we review, uh, get your man, and uh, yeah, my my twentieth birthday present from my dad is that he and I are building together a a storage unit uh, uh, slash uh, home theater setup. We are, we've got I've got I my home theater set is I got a projector and a player and a speaker system. And so we're going to be building this wooden box on wheels um, that will store everything and then also have all the electronics so that you can put the projector on top of it. And um, it'll basically be an all-in-one home theater setup. So that's what I'm going to be spending my time with. Snazzy. Uh, I know. Yeah. No. um, Last year with, I mean, with uh, everything that happened, I finally was like, well, if there's going to be any time to start a physical media collection. It might as well be now. And so I did, and I had to get a player, and then I was like, oh, my projector broke, so I'll get a new one. And, yeah, it's been a... I've... I'm... I'm... 
investing, if you will, in in physical media, and and I think it's a worthy investment. And yeah, um, but uh, that's uh, pretty much it for uh, dance, Dorothy Dance. Mark, uh, what are you going to be doing with your time? Tell us about your blog. <laughs> Plug, Plug yourself. yourself. <laughs> uh, well, um, my blog is. Uh... The Projector Has Been Drinking. Uh, the web address is projectorhasbeendrinking.blogspot.com. I just uh, posted a uh, history and a review of the a short-lived series of what I call uh, retconned uh, music dramas. This was a period in the, the late 80s where a former record company promoter and a part-time beach boy got together and started making movies starting with nothing but a pop song title. There were four of these. There was uh, Knights in White Satin, Hot Child in the City, uh, House of the Rising Sun, and Blueberry Hill. And most of them had like, you know, no big stars and uh, an odd assortment of both uh, music video directors and old uh, television veterans working on them, you know, you know, trying to cash in on the momentum of Miami Vice using pop songs in each of their episodes. And it's a forgotten little chapter of uh, 80s filmmaking that has fascinated me for a long time. And I finally did a deep dive into that. And I'm very proud of what I've done. Uh, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, I'm on the la uh, latest edition of Suddenly Soundtracks with Alonzo and Whitney talking about the Apple, and that's a fun thing to take in. I'm always on Twitter at the Hoik, T-H-E underscore H-O-Y-K, uh, the phonetic pronunciation of my name. And uh, I've done uh, lots of uh, DVD and Blu-ray commentaries, and the one that I'll stress this week uh, involves uh, the late Christopher Plummer, and it is for a 1973 Canadian thriller by Harvey Hart called The Picks, which was released on DVD by Scorpion Releasing and features a commentary with me and uh, the late Karen Black, who starred in the film and had not fully appreciated uh, how good she was in it until uh, we had this conversation. It, it's a little hard to come by, but if you uh, go to... Uh, eBay or Amazon or you know, wherever you can find uh, you know hard to find DVDs it's worth tracking down it's a beautiful transfer of, of a movie that often pops up in terrible public domain transfers this is the only licensed one from the rights holder and it's a uh, uh, same director did the uh, a, uh, the film adaptation of the uh, then controversial uh, uh, prison stage play Fortune in Men's Eyes. So it's a uh, you know a uh, you know underrated director uh, doing a uh, underappreciated uh, little thriller. Uh, so as for me, you can find me on Twitter um, on and on Letterbox at Blu-ray Closet. Uh, got lists going down over on Letterbox now that with all of the various f films that we're reviewing on this podcast network. Uh, if you're listening to this, that means you're a patron. Thank you very much um, for the support, and we hope you're enjoying these, these dives into uh, Martel and Fassbinder and, and Dorothy Arzner. Um, uh, if, if you're enjoying it, then consider uh, spreading the word about uh, the screen's margins. And, uh, yeah, uh, that pretty much... 
wraps it up. Uh, we know there's a pull these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and mainstream stuff. So thank you for spending a little time with us today here on The Margins. Good night. Oh, 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 oh.